well, bundle that in, you know, bundle that in to make it not about a hard blind Ash. negotiation. So if you, once you bundle that in, you kind of have a have a way of talking about it, and and that is a that's a phrase I use. It's like giving the other person a menu, and when you give the other person a menu, you will know what power they have by just talking about items on the menu. Hello and welcome to the Mentors Edition. I am Michelle Chikando and I am thrilled that you've decided to join me for yet another episode. I'm really, really excited about this one. Okay, to be fair, I'm excited about all of them because I get to speak to incredible women who are on the rise, but more importantly, women that want to share with us how they did it. And I'm so grateful for that. So before we dive in, I have to say, I've heard you. And yes, I will be doing a podcast episode on books and what I'm reading because um, I haven't done one of those in a while. Um, I've also heard you, I will be doing a, another podcast to sort of cap off the last one on bullying and gaslighting in the workplace. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for that one. Now, today I'm speaking to Irene Ng. She is a force of nature. In her 20s, she went straight from university after having studied science into being an entrepreneur, um, you know, and also embarking on the journey of motherhood. After that, in her 30s, she went on and decided to change course and become an entrepreneur, but not before launching the first cruise ship business in Malaysia that ran end to end in the year. And then from there, she, you know, has risen through the ranks, become a professor at some of the most prolific universities in the United Kingdom, Warwick University, Cambridge, you name it, she's done it. And now she is running an AI business. So we've done a lot of talking about, you know, where tech is going, how it can enhance our careers. And she is here to tell us how to be better negotiators, you know, how to get what we want from our careers without necessarily just without losing ourselves um, and also with a clear focus on how it benefits the other person. She's also sharing with us this idea of adventure and play in our workplace. She talks about the power of, you know, femininity and, and how we can bring our, bring our true selves in the workplace without too much self-judgment and without needing to have so many rules around us. I really loved this episode because it transformed how I sometimes think about my approach to my work and it brought in a, a nice lightness to it all. Here is Irene. I know you are going to love, love, love this episode. Get your pens out. This one is, 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 is a great one. Thank you so much, Irene, for joining me. I am really, really grateful, especially because right now you're at the Singapore FinTech Festival and everything is happening. So I really appreciate you taking the time out. So because we are, you know, really appreciative of your time, I'm going to dive straight in. And so, you know, you told me that you came from a normal family and your father paid for his own way to become a lawyer and your mother followed suit about four years later. What impact did that have on you as, as a young child watching, you know, your parents develop their own careers and you growing up, you know, in a perfectly, you know, ordinary environment where people were making themselves extraordinary? I think my, my parents both are, are lawyers late. So, you know, father became a lawyer when I was five, my mom when I was nine. And largely because they had to really focus on their own careers and we were very poor before they became lawyers. Um, I was kind of left alone. Um, and there are benefits from being left alone. I always believe that if you leave a kid alone enough and he, if the kid is bored enough, um, kid will be quite creative. And I think I'm quite creative um, because I've been just left alone. I've had to make up my own games and do all sorts of uh, silly things and learn a lot of um, my mistakes early. So from an entrepreneurial perspective, which is uh, quite interesting, I, I live just actually across um, the, the causeway from Singapore in a little border town of Malaysia. And um, 
I like to think that has had a huge influence on my life because I think uh, border towns are a wonderful places to to nurture certain entrepreneurial skills, which are which may or may not be ideal. I mean, it does make a hustler out of a person because if you live in a border town, you probably know how to smuggle the small little bits. Um, very early in life, you know the meaning of the word arbitrage because things are expensive across here and cheaper there. And so you, you start early on in life um, learning the difference in price, arbitraging, entrepreneurial thinking. And I remember even my brother used to uh, buy four rulers and put it in his bag because he knows when he goes across to school in Singapore that someone will forget their ruler and he'll sell one ruler at the price of you know, the, what he paid for all four rulers. And so, and then and he was seven, right? And so wow. I think that, that comes down to that way of thinking that I think all border town kids tend to have. And I think that stayed with me all the way through till, you know, till, till my fully matured life. So you also started doing this cross-border selling. You know, you're you're hustling when you are a. How, how old were you at this at this age when this entrepreneurial mindset kicked in? I think I was around twelve. You know, twelve, fourteen. I think fourteen was probably when it really started because when I, that was when my parents sent me to school in Singapore, and so I went to school in Singapore and came home. And that's when you start to kind of notice the difference between tax regimes, what were more expensive, what were not more expensive. <laughs> so you learn very early. Um, I got caught once uh, smuggling a hard disk. <laughs> you were sm- smuggling a hard disk from, from Malaysia to Singapore? No, from Singapore to Malaysia. Um, and uh, there were all sorts of funny things you would do, and I think they still exist today. Um, there was this tax about um, of, of devices, or you know, if you if you buy a computer, it will be taxed very heavily, and it's expensive in Malaysia. But if you buy components, they are not taxed. So you can buy components and assemble it, and then sell it. So you know, at a very early age, you learn all these things, whether it was computers or, or rulers, it's just a, a fact of life in, 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 in about border town. Very interesting. Bring me into something else, though. You are a girl. You told me about your brother and how he's got this hustle, which is, quote unquote, in our societal way of thinking the norm. But did you ever think about the, your, your, your sex as, as a woman um, when you were growing up, you know, can I do this? Can't I do that? What were the expectations on you as a child growing up in this hustle, if you like? Uh, well, I, I know it's terrible, but as a person who hustle from a young age, you learn to hack uh, based on whatever advantages you have. And if you're a child and a girl and you got caught smuggling a hard disk, what are you going to do? Now, if you're a kid that's a boy, there are things that you're going to think about how you're going to get away with it. But if you're a kid and you're a girl, the first thing you can think about is I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Because if, I'm going to, if I cry and they let me go, I, I can get away with this. I, so I just cry. And so, so yes, I know it sounds awful. But no. Not at all. I love that because it's, it's saying I'm going to use the perception in my favour. So you, you, you started early. It's like, I'm going to use my femininity. This is something that sometimes we're, we're a little bit shy about talking about. I mean, and I'm going to, you know, use my, myself as an example. As you say, this may be the right or the, not be the right thing to say, but I'm willing to say it. And that is sometimes I have found that being a, a minority a woman um, and has gotten, given me an advantage and I have leveraged that. And I think sometimes it is used against us, but there are certainly times when having a, a, the, these sometimes perceived weaknesses is actually a massive advantage and there is no shame in using that. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a skill like any other skill, right? Um, boys, boys can be aggressive because they are strong and sometimes very badly they will use their aggression because they are strong and, and they can bully 
And if you are strong and you can bully, and which is not the right thing you should do, but they do it. If you're weak and you can be vulnerable, and that gets you places too. Well, yeah, sure. I think later I start to realize that almost everything in life is is whatever capabilities you have and however you can hustle and hack. I think as you get older, you start to start to question yourself in terms of how much you like yourself doing this. <laughs> so, so in a way, I stopped crying when I realized that I'm slightly ashamed of myself that I used it. Um, but uh, it got me where I wanted to. And then you start to think about other ways Absolutely. that you could, you know. And I think you always oscillate between these, these feelings. You would use it. And then you would think, oh, maybe I should, you know. And it's a bit like a man who can be very aggressive and can be a bully, but then choose not to, right? Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's all I that. find it's really, this is so interesting. I mean, we didn't talk about this before, but I do think it's absolutely fascinating because I used to find earlier on in my career, my voice would go higher pitched oh. when I was in certain <laughs> meetings. Because then I would find that people have more sympathy, more empathy. And I'm talking about male counterparts. And then I realized I got to a stage in my career that I couldn't stay there. And my voice became lower. I became authoritative. I became clear. Um, and so I find this dynamic of using your femininity. And, and, and it's actually that that is the greatest skill, knowing when to turn it up and knowing when to turn it down. Um, and not relying on one, but actually mastering both. But, but we digress. <laughs> we digress. Let's come back to your story. So you come in and then tell me, what did you decide to study after you grow up in this hustle environment? What did you decide to study and, and, and why? Well, so I was rather playful. And so my family never thought I would mount to anything. And so... And I was, as, as sort of a bit of a rebel, I couldn't be bothered to study very hard because when I was seven, I went to a school and within the first six months, I got first in class. In fact, I got first in the whole grade, the whole standard. That led me into a very wrongful thinking, which is, well, you know, it can just only go downhill from here. <laughs> so, so it's kind of, I've been there, done that. Why do I have to try any harder? I know how it feels now. So I never really tried very hard after the age of seven. I ever got really playful. By the time I got to 16, when it really matters that you have to get to college, university and all that, I um, it was really a hard habit to just like didn't want to study hard I didn't care at all and so I think my parents sent me uh, didn't think thought I was going to fail our school then sent me to Singapore to say well maybe that Singapore education will, will knock some sense out of me yeah we'll fix her yeah yeah we'll, we'll get, get me to be a bit more attentive and it did but for all the wrong reasons because I was put in a very good school where all the girls there, a girls' school, where all the girls there were studying. And I'm a peer pressure kind of kid. So if you're studying, darn it, I gotta have to study it too. Not because I like it, but because you are doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and so I studied and I actually got through my grades and got into university. I, I did a science degree that went on to being double physics, which is um, a weird combination for someone who was, I thought uh, at that time, I wasn't very brilliant. But uh, much, much later in life, I, I got diagnosed with ADHD and I realized now why I wasn't very brilliant at it. Um, I just, uh, first, I, I couldn't focus enough to be able to, and I was very easily uh, distracted. But notwithstanding that, I um, had a B's and C's. So a lot, all through my whole university, I had B's and C's. And my husband is BC. So my, all my friends said, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You knew this. You, you, you married the man that, that matched your grades. And I went like, I don't think it quite looks like that, but okay. Um, so I got out at least uh, with, a, with a degree, um, but just barely. 
Yeah, but you studied science and science is normally seen as a subject for people with serious intellectual gravitas. So why did you choose that? When you know that you're a B's and C's student in your mind, you're not very bright, you're not very capable. Why did you choose a, a hard subject? First, they accepted me. <laughs> but you had to have a slide. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I didn't qualify for anything else. It was either liberal arts, it was really arts or science, general science, but yeah. not specialism. And I didn't think I had it in me to do any of the art subject because I came from the typical Chinese family where as you went through life, you you were always pushed to something that's mathematical. And to be honest, I don't think I was, I thought I was bad. But I guess I wasn't that bad because if you ask me to hustle cross-border calculation of tax, currency, and how much returns I'll get for whatever I'm hustling, I, I could... I could do it. So I guess if you say that's a skill that's more sciencey and, uh, and it's much more analytical, that's probably uh, why I had leanings. Not heavy leanings, but some leanings. Having said that, though, though, I mean, I am, my creativity did set me out to be better, I think, on the sort of social science. Definitely not artistic at all. No, that would be not my way of. But again, you know, I think you also change over life. I think there's a there is a fallacy that you are consistent and constant. That's not true. I think you you change and you acquire different tastes and different interests. Today, I'm a huge fan of history and philosophy and art. I never was, you know. So yeah. I think it's this idea that you shouldn't let a what your in what your instincts are because your instinct was I'm a B's and C student I'm not good at anything I'm just going to go there, and b what you then study sort of define who you are and what you're capable of, and we're sort of trained to have this I'm left brain or I'm right brain, but actually you can be whatever you want to be. I think it's easier to say it on hindsight to think about it. At that time, I didn't think that hard. Mm. I don't think you, I think for us, maybe my generation, we were just glad to have been accepted. <laughs> like, it's a different thing with my, my children now, where standards and you need to think about it. I think we ask our, uh, our youth a lot in terms of amount of cognition they have to expend in, in sort of, life decisions when mm -hmm. so much of life decision I find just can't be predicted or, or, or be able to be saying who you are at that age so I fell headlong into whoever accepted me you take me yay I'll do it you know <laughs> and that was it you know? I, I love that because we had a, our last guest on the podcast talked about how there's so much emphasis on having a plan and thinking things through. And actually, sometimes it's OK just to let life happen. And that's essentially what you're saying. You said, you know, life kind of I just allowed it to happen or you didn't even allow it. It just happened. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but with, with that, there's so many within the youth today that, that would let themselves do that because exactly. there's so much FOMO around. There's so much what if I wrong around. There's you need well, you know, it's the same as I used to tell mothers, you know, later when I had children, they went like, oh, you've got to be a good mother. What, what is that? You know, you, you just trade off one set of mistakes with another set of mistakes. No matter how my children are going to be screwed up, might as well just put some money aside for therapy. <laughs> Fair point, but let's get to that. So let me, let, let's get to this motherhood bit, but there's a little chunk in the middle that I'm really interested in. So you finish university and then what happens? Well, I finished university and uh, my father decided as the firstborn child, that I should be an entrepreneur. And he gave, uh, he, uh, after, well, were you, are you interested in, the work part or the sort of home part? The, the work part and then the, the, the life part the that home, came the after life. that, yes. 
And so the, so the work part is odd because he thought you should be an entrepreneur and a good way of being an entrepreneur is just um, uh, start a business. And he had a little hotel in downtown LA. And he said to me, hey, there's space on the ground floor, big space. You should start displaying and selling furniture. What, what, what would I know anything about selling furniture? But I thought, Okay, sounds like a great idea. Let's go. Give me that was it. I put funny. So you've got a science degree. Woohoo, we graduated. Now you're gonna go and sell furniture. Why did you not say no? Anybody would have said, I need to go and work in a research lab. I need it. Why did you take that opportunity? It's fun. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it was going to LA. I've never done this before. He thinks it's a good idea, so he should know better than me. Okay. <laughs> so, and and, and uh, did I think it was not a good idea? Oh, no. No, this was another adventure. You know, okay. And uh, I, I did try to sell. Um, didn't work out very well, <laughs> as you imagine. Not no. because I didn't buy, but because uh, my, 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 my father decided that giving me a container full of furniture without any working capital was a great idea. And... And I, at that, that time, I didn't know that's not a good idea. You can't meet some working capital. He says, oh, you need working capital? Just sell the furniture. <laughs> so, you know, um, God, not exactly how you would run a business, but that was my dad. All right. So I did it for a, about a year. And then my mom stepped in and, um, and she said, you know, I, I had a boyfriend then. It's my husband, BC, remember? Yeah. And he was um he was back in Asia, he was back in Malaysia, and my mom said, you know, you need to uh you need to come home because you need to get married. Um and I could have said no, but the business wasn't going very well. So I went like, okay, okay, I need to get married. Thank On to you, the next <laughs> On to the next adventure, getting married. Yeah, but, but how did you feel in terms, I mean, it, in some ways it was, you know, it didn't work out. How did you feel about that? Did you take that personally? Did you, how did you process that? I took that personally. I mean, my dad did it again after my first child was born. Um, and I guess I never learned because I never studied business, right? So I don't have frameworks. I just have a hustling Mindset, yeah. Mindset, right? Um, so you thought everything, you, you have to make up everything. You didn't know that there was a thing called a business school and business. You thought, you know what you don't know? Yeah, you, you don't know what you don't know. Right, so you make it up. And I thought it was my fault that the business didn't go well. Um, and then no, later you'd say, well, of course, you had no working capital. It wouldn't have gone well. But I did think it was my fault because I didn't know any better, right? So, mm -hmm. okay. And then, so you you have you you take your mum's you take your mum's advice. You go and tell this man it's time to get married now, <laughs> um, and you get married and you have a child. And then what happens? Well, my dad didn't did that get. Um, he he bought a, a travel company. Um, and uh, it was losing half a million dollars a year. He said, you know, do you want to take it and turn it around? And this, this time it's local to me. It's where I'm living in Malaysia. Uh -huh. And so uh, he says, here's a million dollars working capital now. Progress. Yes, progress. What he failed to tell me, though, is that the debt of the company was $2.5 million. <laughs> so it wasn't working capital. So... I spent the first two years of that company negotiating debt. I got debt of 2.5 million down and negotiated down to a million. And uh, I was still without any working capital. <laughs> <laughs> and there were no equity markets then. There's no startup debt that you could do. No, no. Um, so I thought what would be the business I can diversify into that would get me tons and tons of cash flows and let me sit on it for a few months. Um, and I thought, cruise ship. I'm going to run a cruise ship. That's it. And we're going to get a cruise ship and I'm going to bring it in. So I was a pioneer in cruising in 1990, 1991. A Coral Princess, which is spirit, um, quite a few of ships. I, I 
um, I chartered them, I sold them and we really got quite famous and there was uh, a lot of uh, cash flows and I turned the company around in 1992. Made it up, made up all those things all along the way. Yeah. So when you tell your story, I know it kind of all happened in, in over a lot extended period of time and you just now go chop, 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 chop. So let me <laughs> let me dive into some of the aspects. So your father, your father gave you the furniture business that didn't work out. You go away, you have a baby. Obviously, you're in you've got baby brain, you've got marriage situation and he comes back again. Why do you say yes again? I mean, what's your relationship with a failure because you had just experienced something that you took quite personally and B fear because you've just got to now that you've just about settled again, you, you're going to go and do it again where you're not fearful. How, how what, what, what is your relationship with, with fear and, and failure? I didn't think it was uh, fearful. I just thought it was another adventure. Okay. Here we go. Another one. I think did, Did I you ask think maybe I'm going to fail again? Did I think whether I was going to fail again? Um, no. No, I didn't. I didn't go in thinking I was going to fail again. I, I went in because the idea of failure suggests that you can predict the future. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is very true. Rather than you can invent a future. Okay. So, so you have no fear because if you're inventing a future, you'd rather invent it without failure, right? So, theory, yes, absolutely. So, so if you think of failure, that means you have thought through every possibility and then predict the chances of failure. Now, how is that possible? Right. And you have to, yeah, and you have to put all your faith in a terrible outcome. No, you have to put all your faith that you know all the information mm-hmm. to be able to predict outcomes. I have no such information. <laughs> Correct. No information. Correct. So no. if you don't have such information, then all outcomes are possible. Absolutely. And I absolutely love that because you're right. It is all about a, I don't know what's going to happen. But what I love about your mindset is you've said three things that we associate with childhood that have actually been the pillars of your life and your career. You've said adventure, you've said play, and you've said invention. You know, this idea of approaching things with a sense of not, not the heaviness of what negative outcome could be, but actually let's experiment, let's play, let's have fun, right? And, and that yeah, allowed just, you... No, yeah, you just, you just don't say it too loud at that time. You, <laughs> just, don't, you just don't say it, you think it. Yeah. But you just don't say it, right? I mean, right. you said to me at that time, oh, do you think you will fail? I go like, oh, I'm in it for the play. And no, no, you just think it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, but you use it to propel you. So you then get into a business and again, you're like, yay, I've got a million bucks to play with. No, I don't. Um, And you're plugging holes, you're thinking, innovating, okay, I'm paying down this massive debt and I'm I'm learning how to navigate um, other stakeholders, right? People want their money back. I'm learning how to rob Peter to pay Paul. You're learning so many different skills in business and you're hustling, right? And then you get to the point where you're like, okay, I've got this now. So what can I do to invent another way for this business to succeed? Um, and, and my question, I guess, is how do you, how do you problem solve? Because it seems like from the moment you stepped onto that, uh, that, that second business, the travel business, you were firefighting. You know, I've solved this problem. Now I need to solve that problem. I've solved this problem. Now I need to solve that problem. And um, how do you approach problem solving? Um, I guess without, I'm- without, without think, you know, because what usually what happens is, is I have a problem and it's, oh, I need to go to bed now. I'll come back in six weeks. How do you approach that without crumbling under the pressure of your very real situation? 
think when you face a problem, uh, I think we look at problems quite differently. If you're a child and you're given this box with three different shapes and you're giving these little shapes and you have to put them into the right shape so that the shape can go in, you've got a problem. That child is going to go whack, whack, whack and find it and then shove it into the right shape. <laughs> whack, whack, whack. He doesn't think, oh no, I am weighing under the failure of if I whack it, it didn't go in. Actually, the child doesn't do that. The child's going to whack, whack, whack and then find a shape that suits and it pushes it in. And that's, that's how you do it, right? You, you look at a problem as a problem. I mean, I think you can try to load it cognitively and say, oh, God, what's going to happen if I don't solve it? Yeah, but let's, that's just, that's just, I think that's just a belief that while you're whacking stuff, there's an audience watching. I think if you were putting things and there was an audience watching, even for a baby, <laughs> you would go, I don't want to do this. I mean, for a child, you want to do this somewhere. And I think we suffered from this conception that as we do things, there's a lot of people watching it, maybe because of social media, because so much of us is out there, it's become more apparent and worse. But in my day, no one was watching you. <laughs> no one's watching you. So you just, like a child, go solve the problem. Mm-hmm. No one's watching you solve it, or whether you're succeeding or failing, no one. Just go do it. Yeah. I think that's very powerful, actually, because I do think we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves, but actually nobody's watching because everybody else is busy living, right? It's the perception that you believe there are people watching. Mm. That's the problem. You put a lot of anxiety on yourself when you feel people are watching. And then at that age, at that time, there was no social media. I mean, who knew whether I did something right or wrong? Only I knew. Right. So I'm going to, there's a lot more in your story, but I'm going to fast forward us on a little bit. So you run the the travel business and it's very exciting times in in terms of problem solving, exciting. Um, And and then you reach over to this point where, you know, you have a a few, a few more challenges along the way, and then you tie it up and say, okay, I'm not going to do this, uh, the travel business anymore. And then what happens? Oh, no, I didn't. I, I turned the company around. Mm-hmm. I went to my dad and said, get yourself a proper CEO, <laughs> more qualified than I am. Um, I want to go play with this thing called cruise ships, you know. So I, um, you know, put together investment memorandum and raised $10 million, uh, ring it that time, and, and said I was going to run a, a cruise ship called Empress Cruise Lines. And I raised the money. I got the money. And uh, I started my own cruise ship um, and then realizing that the cruise business, I should have known, I suppose, but we thought we could be able to uh, face up to the problem with the peaks and troughs. So peak seasons and, you know, uh, out of season that you had difficulty filling. And so you've got a lot of cash flow issues when you're not able to to even that out. And... uh, that was the business that I was really um, trying my best to to get stay afloat, uh, pun intended, um, and uh, and then decided that in order to be able to to even it out, I had to go into a casino business. So I ran a ten table casino on the ship to about two hundred fifty million dollar turnover a month, um, which sort of with a spread of about one percent net could kind of get you about 2.5 million and the operating cost was about 2.2 million. We had a very thin margin. It's a huge, huge volume turnover. Uh-huh. That was the, that was the, that business. Okay. And so again, you say, okay, I'm going to go from this problem and now I'm actually going to do what I want. Now you say, thank you, dad, for always throwing me in at the deep end. <laughs> now I'm going to throw myself in at the deep end and figure that and learn how to swim in a different way. So you start the casino, you start the cruise line business. And I think you said it was the first. We were the first in Kuala Lumpur to have brought the ships in. Now I was the first then to um, do year-long cruising in Southeast Asia. And after running it for a bit, even with the casino, 
um, I, you know, starts to get competition. So the larger cruise ship company starts to come in. And I ran into debt. Story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, lack of capital, debt, even though margins on the casino was pretty good, you just had to have a lot more capital than $10 million. So I sold the company. I took back only about 20% back in 1996. Right. So you you sell the company and then the question is, what's next? Well, I thought by the ripe old age of 33, which is when I sold the company. It is so crazy to me that you have done all of the stuff we discussed before you are 33. And at this point, you have one child, two children. Uh, I had three. Oh, my God. I had three. I had oh. three by then. Um, I thought, I, you know what? I think I've seen a lot of life for a 33-year-old compared to a lot of other people. I think I should just write it down. I should write it all down. Let's go in back to school and, and write it all down. So I, I checked into the National University of Singapore here and um, decided to a master's in research to write it all down. Um, all the, the abstraction, the thinking, the learning. And sort of within three months, forgot all about it, decided to go into game theory and mathematical economics. It's how fickle I am. Terrible. Yeah. So you start something with the writing. You're like, I'm going to past based, you know, put everything I've learned. And then within a few weeks, you've gone, okay, no, this was an adventure. It was great. Goodbye something new um, you know I'm gonna do game theory and mathematical economics you said well it's a it's a fate it's, it's a bit of a social identity thing before you check into the university your heroes you know I, I blogged about this I said your heroes were at that time you know in those days it was Jack Welch was the tycoons and the CEOs of captains of industry and then you check in and you're doing a master's and they think you're writing you can actually have some potential you know how it is when people tell you have the potential in something you start to believe in yourself a little bit more and you think (laughs) oh yes I have the potential and I can do this and then you realize you could actually be an academic and they offer you the ability to do a PhD Woo! even better and start slowly slowly you trade your heroes away from Jack Welch to someone like Michael Porter a Harvard Business School professor and we just have a different set of heroes right so you I call this the trading heroes phenomenon where your kind of your social identity starts to change into who you think you are and that was kind of where I thought I could do this. I could be an academic, couldn't I? You know, and that was how I ended up in academia. And you, 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 you go game theory. I mean, and that, that's quite, again, you go for, these are not uh, subjects, if you like, for people that are intellectually weak or even B's and C's students. Well, I still didn't do very well in the exams because uh, I don't do very well under confined conditions for examination. But I was quite good in critiquing. You know, if you want me to quarrel or argue about something, I'm really good at it. <laughs> so, so I'm very good at arguing. I could critique. I could see gaps where no one could see. I could, you know, I, I could understand intellectually where potential gaps are. So I think, I think there is a sense... I think there's a sense among people, there's a perception among people that when you are intellectually strong, you are having the breadth of intellectualism. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think I was intellectually strong for the things that I was interested in. And I'm completely crap in <laughs> the things I'm not. So motivation and interest drives, I think, to some degree, what you're quite good at. And so to say, oh, you're smart. No, I'm not. I'm like, I'm only smart in the things that I really love, baby. Because I invest in it, right? No, I'm not really not smart. And the other things I'm not good at, neither am I motivated. I think we, we have to stop thinking in these labels that if you're smart, intellectually strong, it kind of under the umbrella over you. No, it's like people calling me a role model. It's, it's just terrible. I'm a terrible role model. You should, uh, I'd rather talk about role behaviors i'm great behaviors on tuesdays and thursdays terrible on weekends you know i mean <laughs> i'd rather think about 
the, the contextual parts of you, the situational parts of you, because I'm essentially a, a socioeconomist, right? So I, I like to think that you do not have to be that consistent because I don't think human beings are. I completely agree. And I, I do think you are absolutely right, because in my own way of thinking, if you ask me to think about something in a really like this, I can do it very well. Ask me to think about something in a sequential way. You've lost me. <laughs> and, 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 and it's just a the way of thinking. So you find you, yourself asking me something very basic and I cannot give you a response. But you ask me something quite complex sometimes and I can but it's just, it's, it, like you say, it's not about this box. Again, we're coming back to this idea of things fitting into a box, and sometimes they don't have to. I and do and it's the label. Absolutely. It's about labeling, right? You know, exactly. once you get labeled, they think you're consistently that label. And, and I think, you know, we've just had too many psychologists create labels and sort of consistency in this label. But even psychologists will tell you you're not consistent with your labels. Right? You might have consistent labels, but they don't apply to you all the time. All the time. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. I think one thing that does apply to you all the time, though, is your relationship with your husband. So he's watching you going through all these different career moves, businesses, and whatever. And then you go to say, I'm going to university. And he says, okay. And then he, two, three weeks later, you come back and you say, game three. just talk to me about his experience <laughs> in all this and, and, and sort of how, how, do, how has it worked? Because a lot of times as women, um, our relationship with our partner determines a lot of the things that we do. So tell me, tell us, give us a little bit of, uh, um, show us a little bit about that side of things. My husband um, is an incredibly uh, confident person. Um, he, it doesn't come across that way, but he was very confident in himself. So he's quite happy to say, I look after my wife or, you know, I, I, he's very happy. He's confident in his own skin. Mm-hmm. And when you're a confident person in your own skin, how your wife or how your partner is, doesn't halo on you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. So you're the and so I always used to refer to him as my rock, which is my way of saying that he was very confident and whatever craziness I get up to, he doesn't change at all. He basically just says, what? he lifts his eyebrow and he goes like, what was that? And 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 I go, I'm thinking this. And he goes, okay. Now, I don't know whether okay was I approve, I don't approve. And, and sometimes, especially in my younger days, I used to sort of poke the bear and say, what do you mean by okay? Do you approve of it? Do you not approve of it? Do you think well of it or not? And he will always used to say, but what has that to do with, I mean, why, why would you care if I approved or not approved? Why would it matter? And I went, I'd like to know. Oh, and then he would sort of challenge me and say, would you change what you do? And I go, hmm, no, but I'd like you to be happy. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and, but because he's confident, he allows me to be slightly more uh, creative and adventurous. Interesting. And, and I think, I think that is, um, that is, a, a, a testament, I guess, to the relationship that you have and, and, and to the man that he is, the, the fact that you are so um, open. Although, and in- I, although I have a superstition. <laughs> I have a superstition because if I do something and he doesn't approve, usually it doesn't go well. Ooh, okay. So I had this before when I've done a few of these before and I realized that those he approve of tend to go well. Not because, I don't know why, but just do. And so now it's become a superstition. So <laughs> like whenever I, you say you're going to do something, you're like, please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. <laughs> That's right. So when I, uh, when I later, like I wanted to buy a house and this particular house was quite expensive and I, I really, really loved it. And I sort of, and he's turned, he said no or did not prove for three already. 
but this one I really like. And he went like, hmm. It was kind of non-committal about uh-huh. it. And, and then he says, can't say yes, can't say no, I'm, I'm ambivalent. And then I thought, I'll go with that, I'll go with that. <laughs> so, and it was a good decision. So my superstitions are holding It's up. so far, it's 100% hit rate. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk to you about something, which is actually the bulk of um, the, 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 the meatiest part of the, the, the conversation, and that is around negotiation. So you do game theory, you then move, move on and you become a professor, and then now it's time for you. I'm really fast-tracking because you've done so much. Um, you know, you, you become a professor, and now it's time for you to move to the UK um, and it's a question of where. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what happens um, in that transition. The transition from the transition for you for you to become to get your I think it was the role in in Exeter, where you then had the negotiation. Right. So I I look at negotiation quite probably quite differently because as a, as a game theorist, as an economist, there is a tendency for me to play mind tricks with yourself. Like if you want, if you want something enough, you are prepared to pay for something. It's like, you know, it's like a bidding on eBay. Right. How much are you willing to pay for something? Um, and you say the price to me is if it's a dollar more and you lost it, you're happy to have lost it. And if it's a dollar less and you're not happy with losing it, then you know you've not bid it enough. So there's a line of which right at that edge, if you got that amount, you'd be very happy to walk away and you uh, and very happy if you want it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is what um that is sort of that frontier, that little boundary that I constantly look for. I have a, I have a, 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 a metaphor for this, which is the, uh, is this the right time to talk about the Buridan donkey? Yes, absolutely. So, so, so those who, who study economics will know the Buridan donkey. So the Buridan donkey is exactly the same distance from food as, it, as he is from water. And he wants both. Now, the Burundian donkey dies because he's equidistant. He can't decide. He's paralyzed. Mm. So he dies. <laughs> so, so theoretically, in economics, Burundian donkey dies. But in real life, no, of course not. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you lean one way or the other. Right. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there is a line that will make you indifferent. And I think in all negotiation, we have to go into that in the same way. So if you are trying to negotiate uh, a salary, if you're trying to negotiate a package, it's all about what you're prepared to give up for whatever you get. And you have to find that boundary. Absolutely. Tell us about your story with the negotiation, with the one, the one where you came about with the three times the amount. Oh, wow, that one. Okay, yeah. I don't know I should be saying this, but um, so there was a university. I have to be very careful. Although I have to say, um, I don't know what I should be. Okay, fine. I think I, I, I can say this now because my, my boss have passed away and, you know, so it's... It's fine. And you don't, we don't have to talk about which institution. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I was with the university and I wanted... Uh, so I was headhunted to go and visit another university. And, and they said to me, all right, you, we would love to have you here, but you can't do consultancy. Now I'm a business school professor. You tell a business school professor you can't do you can't do consultancy. That's just not it. You 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 want to be able to supplement your income with consultancy. That's how it goes. All business school professor. So I uh, do that, and I I said no no no. That's that's not going to happen. You you can't pay me enough. And the gentleman said, well, "Try me." So I thought, "Oh gosh, what is this?" You know. So. 
I went back in the evening, spoke to my mentors and said, what, what is this? You know, this was, uh, I, I was working, I was getting a package. Um, it was a certain amount. I spoke to my mentor and he said, oh, by the way, in that university, do you know how much finance professors are paid? And I said, how much? And he gave me an amount that was three times of what I was getting right now. And I thought, hmm, okay, but I'm not a finance professor. I'm only in marketing and markets. And, uh, but I thought, okay, I've, I've got a number. So I went in, but before I went in, I thought, if they don't offer me, will I walk away? Probably. If they do, okay. So I found sort of my mental boundary, which is about three times, not quite three times. And mm-hmm. I gave the number. And they came back and said, Okay, we'll do it. And so that was like very, very fulfilling um, because overnight I could afford three Chanel bags every month. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the right metric for life, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Not not that I would buy three Chanel bags a month. But I couldn't before, and suddenly I could, and fantastic no I love that I think that's brilliant but talk me through this because you said if they said no I would walk away like what was your mindset because a lot of a lot of times we are afraid as as people or as women to ask for what we think we deserve so talk me through that that thinking talk me through your experience when you want a higher salary when you want less hours or whatever it is that you want how to approach a negotiation I think um, when we negotiate, it's a bit like a hustle. Um, you know, you have to think about the parameters. I think there are certain things that you are prepared to include in the package. So, for example, if it is not just money, it is, oh, if, do I get, you know, a postdoc? Do I get a PhD student funded in that package? Do I get more time? Do I get to work only from home or work from home? Do I get to only go into office a day or two? So a woman's life generally, I think it probably applies to men too, um, has a lot of soft aspects that will make your life better. Well, bundle that in, you know, bundle that in to make it not about a hard line Ash. negotiation. So if you, once you bundle that in, you kind of have a have a way of talking about it. And and that is a there's a phrase I use. It's like giving the other person a menu. And when you give the other person a menu, you will know what power they have by just talking about items on the menu. <laughs> so, for example, they will come back and say, oh, we could do uh, how many days a week because you realize this guy actually has the power to be able to give you that. And sometimes they don't have the power, sometimes they do. But in the way you discuss the items in your menu, mm. in your package, you get a very good understanding where, where that package can yield and where it can't yield. And don't forget, you can use time. These things are not constant forever. You can say for the first six months. You could say, I want to work from home from the first, how many, you know, there are lots of ways to to keep bundling and bundling to the level that you are happy with. So it's not so hard edge as this is about cash. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I had a job where I was working in the office and I said, I need to work from home at least three days a week. Um, But I said, culturally, I understand your institution is not used to this. So for the first three months, I will stagger that. I will do almost full time in the office. Any day you need me, I'll be in. Whilst you prepare the ground on your side. And so for me, it was, and it was also about holidays. I was like, as you say, I've never thought of it it that way, but I did give him a menu. I didn't just say, I want a higher salary and that's it. 
I said, I want this salary, but if you can't give me that, you can also do this, or you can move on this side, or you can do this, or you can twist yourself into a pretzel to give me what you want, <laughs> to give me what I want. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, and so I mean, much of package has to do with your work, this idea of this work-life balance is, you know, the idea that work doesn't cross across to life and life doesn't cross across to the thing you've got to have a balance doesn't do very well with me. I mean, work is my life, life is my work. My question is how do I intermingle mm. in order to still produce whatever I do but have a good life? And in that package, usually you can work on intermingling even more so before now than before because of you know post-COVID remote working and things like that. So yeah, put 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 more stuff in the menu. I'll never forget there was one time where um, I had a grant. This is a UK grant um, or for my research and they granted me the research and they had travel in the, uh, a, a chunk of the ground for traveling to London. Now, Exeter to London is like two and a half hours by train. So I'm, uh, I'm going back, it's a real pain. And to stay in London, is like 200 pounds or 150, 200 pounds. I thought, this is just ridiculous. I've got a full fellowship. I could actually live somewhere near London. But the grant has travel in it, and so not. But then if I stayed somewhere else, it's not travel. I will cut down the travel. But who am I saving the money for? Mm. I'm going to increase my rent. So I actually wrote in to the UK research to say, let me give you a calculation of how much my travel is if I stayed in Exeter. And let me give you a calculation of how little I travel, but then I will have increase in rent. Would you consider a 500 pound subsidy of my rent if I moved out of Exeter? The answer came back in two weeks to say yes. But you asked. This is right. You asked. You I asked. asked. And that's the biggest thing. Sometimes we are even afraid to ask. And you asked because you thought the worst thing they're going to say is no. Oh, no, no. No. I asked because if I were in their place, I'll say yes. I like that. So this is what this is exactly how you ask. You ask in such a way that it's impossible to say no to, because it makes sense for you too. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's how this is more productive. Here's how this is better. Here's how I'm going to deliver. Plus plus. Why would you say no to me? So you ask in a way that makes it beneficial for the person you are asking. You think you put yourself in their position and think, what do they need to hear from me? And then how do I make it compelling for them? Not just, I want, like a toddler. <laughs> no. No. No, no, in I, fact, I mean, and, and in fact, that's, I think, I think some of my friends will probably laugh to say, I really, it's very hard to say no to. And that's a very, very good reason for why I'm hard to say no to, because I always think about you when I ask something. Mm, and you ask. Why ask otherwise? Absolutely. No, I absolutely love that. And unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up because our time is a little bit short. But I do want to ask you um, to share any advice that you have for somebody who is, you know, muddling through and doesn't really have an idea of, you know, doesn't have, in quotes, everything in order. And, and some advice that you can give around um, things that you have found helpful on your way up. I think you need to not overthink the future um, because I feel that in the future is something, I really believe the future is something you invent, not you predict. So you, you invent that future. People have asked, how do you know the choice of A and B is the right one? And I always say, it's always the right one because you will make it the right one, you know? So you, you would not ever know what the alternative is. So that's the good news. <laughs> the good news is <laughs> you will never know what the alternative is if you're chosen something else. So why would you even dwell on it? You would just probably invent that future. And, that, and I think we are our worst enemy when, when it comes to that kind of overthinking, uh, 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 you know, um, of, of that, that future. The second thing I probably will say is also that um, having a sense of play is, is marvelous. 
uh, I've always felt that, my, you know, my husband always used to say, your toys just got more and more expensive, you know, and um, yeah, I have grants of a few million dollars that create and research and thing. I'm running a business right now for my invention, you know, and it's, and yes, it is, but the sense of curiosity and play drives the, the, the thing that you're trying to do is more important than just sort of overthinking. What if I don't succeed? Yes. Who's watching again, you know, who's like, who's watching just, just kind of, you know, seize that moment. Mm. I absolutely love that. And I do think that is a, a pillar of success for a lot of people that I know that have been successful. This idea of, I'm just having fun. I'm exploring. I'm curious. I'm, oh, something didn't work. That's fine. There, there'll be other things. We keep moving forward. Um, Irene, thank you so much. That was so, so insightful. And there are not enough hours to go through the amazing thing <laughs> that you have done. Um, and hopefully we will have you on again soon because you are a wealth of knowledge. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time out. Um, have more fun presenting tomorrow at the Singapore FinTech Summit. Um, and, and yes, again, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me, Michelle.